You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Constantin Kisson. It's a great pleasure to be able to talk to Constantine Kisson here in London. Uh, and we've had a conversation before, but this one is really relevant in terms of what's happening in the world today. He's a well-known, award-winning Russian-British comedian, social commentator and podcaster. He's written for publications including Quillette, The Spectator, The Daily Telegraph and Standpoint on issues relating to tech censorship, woke culture and comedy. He's a very funny man. He's one of Britain's most sought after commentators on the culture wars and more recently, owing to his intimate understanding of Russian and Ukrainian society on the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. He's co-host of the podcast Trigonometry and his first book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, will be published in July this year. The title says it all. But uh, Constantine, just terrific to see you again. Uh, and for those who might have forgotten from our last conversation and so forth, can you give us a bit of a feel for the way in which your life has given you a unique capacity to understand the Russia of your homeland and the Britain that you now live in and understand today as part of the West? Hmm. Well, I grew up in the Soviet Union uh, with uh, several generations of my family. I talk about it uh, in the book quite a lot, actually. Uh, you know, I come from three generations of people who uh, were living in a totalitarian dictatorship uh, and suffering the consequences being my grandmother lives in in the uk now you can go and talk to her she's alive today she was born in a gulag born, born in a gulag was that possible that to, you know to be born and survive well what happened was her father uh, was uh, a very respected engineer who ended up in the gulag and so he had some privileges and one of them was when he got together with my grandmother's mother that they were actually allowed to live separately from the camp etc but she was born in the gulag just explain for those who might not you know, a lot of young people you and i'm well you're younger than me <laughs> yeah what's a gulag I mean, it's a pretty horrible place but what's a gulag a gulag is a essentially a constant soviet concentration camp for their own citizens who had misbehaved in one way or another, uh, misbehaved in quotation marks, of course, had said the wrong thing, had the wrong opinion, you know, whatever, were, were the wrong ethnicity at points in time, you know. Um, and uh, it was starvation diet, forced labor. I think approximately 10% of the population would, be, would end up being dead at the end of a year. Um, and of course, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of my heroes, he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, in which he exposed for the first time, really, the extent of what was happening. Um, and the West came to understand Russia, but we've forgotten it since, I'd suggest. And yeah, that's and where I, you come in. Well, we came to understand Russia very slowly. There were a lot of people, even in those days, even after it had been revealed, who wanted to whitewash uh, everything that had been happening in the Soviet Union. So not only my own experience growing up in the tail end of the Soviet Union, but also the histories of my family, hearing my grandmother in Ukraine, uh, alive today, she's 96 years old, you can go and talk to her, perfectly compassmentous, lived through the German occupation of, of Soviet Ukraine. Uh, her husband, my grandfather, was taken as a slave laborer to Germany. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing I always say about him is, uh, the most dangerous thing you could have been in that period of time was someone who'd been in Germany and come back because everyone like that, Stalin would get straight in the camp or executed because they were a, a traitor or, or, or whatever. So my grandfather never told anyone he'd been taken to Germany until the Soviet Union collapsed. He waited 50 years, John. That's how terrified he was. That was the fear that people had in their minds. And so I grew up with a family full of these stories. My grandmother, who I mentioned, uh, her family were kulaks, uh, wealthy peasants. They had a horse. That, that was how wealthy they were. Uh, and uh, when the Soviets came and began to expropriate everybody's property, uh, they sent, uh, basically took their house, took all their possessions, threw them out onto the street, and actually deported them to Siberia. And my grandmother's little brother, she, she tells the story, starved on the way as a, as a boy. So I grew up with all of that, um, all of these stories of my family. Um, and now I live here in the heart of one of the most prosperous societies in the world. So that contrast, I think, helps me to see things perhaps from a slightly different perspective to most people. 
And that's why it's so valuable. Uh, and in recent times, uh, because of the Ukrainian uh, conflict, mm. you've been so sought out as a commentator that I'm, it's just wonderful to be able to talk to you today. One more question before we, uh, we go to the, the themes we're talking about uh, as, a, as a, the object of our conversation. It strikes me, and you're a classic example of it, we think of Russians as very deep thinkers. You mentioned Solzhenitsyn, but some of the great Russian th thinkers, writers, people of extraordinary depth. And you have that about you, but you also have this capacity to laugh and make others laugh. You're a comedian, although at the moment I think probably on a you... break from comedy now. Yeah, yeah, uh, for for reasons we don't even need to get into. Just uh, lifestyle-wise, it, it wasn't working for me. But uh, you know, it's it's a misnomer about Russians. Russians have a great sense of humor. Yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, a great sense of humor and and a very dark one for for reasons that are fairly obvious if you if you open a history book about the history of russia you kind of have to be able to laugh at dark things if you want to have a sense of humor so russians have a great sense it's different to, to the one that people have in the west but and also you know i i i um i wouldn't want to uh, let on um, i wouldn't want to allow you to compare me in any way to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You know, uh, I, I don't claim to, to be to think as deeply or to have gone through anything. So he went, he was in the gulag for 10 years. I went to a British boarding school. That's where the similarities end. Yeah, except that you're helping us unpack a society we don't understand, mm. we've been lazy about. And now suddenly we have to grapple with it because anything could happen as you and I sit here. Mm. I think we'd agree. Mm. Uh, in, in this part of the world, and as, a, as an Australian, I'm struck by the fact that people here are not as aware of what's happening in China. Mm. In Australia, in my view, we're not as aware of either situation as we ought to be, and you can help us understand it. So, so, so to come to, you wrote recently a fascinating article. It's a really interesting article um, on the support that Putin has even now amongst Russians. It's, it's surprisingly high. It appears to be directly correlated to the age of the Russians. Um, I sense that most Westerners simply won't be able to understand that because of their experience of democratic capitalism. Um, it's so different to the experience of Russians. Can you unpack for us why, contrary to what we might expect, the anti-democratic Putin actually enjoys not perhaps popularity, but amazingly strong support among many Russians? Mm. Well. Uh, I, I, was, I was probably going to begin my answer by asking you a question. Uh, what do you think of when I say the word democracy? Uh, are people who are, in the end, able to dictate to government what it is uh, that they want and to remove them peacefully if they don't deliver. Mm. And with that the comes point of a pencil, not prosperity, a yeah. stability, mm. security, and many other things. Whilst people remain true to the ideals of democracy yes. and understand its foundations. Quite, quite, quite But quite. only why. Well, we can get into that conversation yeah, yeah. <laughs> separately. But if we stick with the answer to your que initial question is, when you think of democracy, you think about the ability to remove a leader peacefully, yeah. transition of power, security, stability, yeah. and prosperity. That's why we all think democracy is great. If you say democracy to a Russian person, well, you've got to look at our history. We've never had democracy. Yeah. Russia has never had Russia. The first uh, mention historically of Russia is 882, eight, eight, um, so 1200 years ago, a long time ago. In that entire period, there's never been a single democratic transition of power, ever, ever. Yeah. The only time Russia experimented with quote unquote democracy, and for people listening, I'm using quotation marks, was the period between 1991 yeah. and, the period, and 1999 when Vladimir Putin becomes prime minister and eventually president. That period is probably one of the most traumatic periods in the history of anyone alive in Russia today. It was a time in which uh, you went from a poor and unfree society, which was the Soviet Union, which most people didn't really know how poor and how unfree they were, to a society of complete chaos rampant crime. Uh, you went from, you know, you were a university professor with a respectable job and, and today and tomorrow, and I mean tomorrow, you were selling your belongings in the street. Your children who were in school and doing well, and all, you, all they needed to do was get the right grades and go to the right university, and then they would have a career. It wouldn't be a great career, but it would be one that would, their life would be okay. Suddenly, your son was sent, shipped off to fight in Chechnya, which you'd never heard of before, and your daughter was a prostitute. 
because that was how quickly the society changed. I'm not saying that was every single person's experience, but we all knew somebody. We all knew somebody who'd fallen, a woman who'd fallen prey to the slave trade, or a person who, uh, you know, lost a son in Chechnya, or was wounded, or was sent to the military, uh, or someone who ended up going from being wealthy to being in extreme poverty, people who drank themselves to death, people who took drugs and, and, and overdosed on drugs. We all, and the thing that was most important about that, he was through no fault of your own. The society collapsed around you and everything you'd worked or all your savings, gone, overnight, gone. Think about that. Yeah. Think how shocking that is to people. It's very hard to come to grips with. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. People will listen to this and go, oh, but you can't imagine it. Yeah. Everything in your life, think about your life now, your family, your friends, your finances, how much money you have, your job, all of that gone through no fault of your own. You've done nothing wrong, but the society has collapsed and suddenly it's chaos. And you are not prepared for this market capitalist society. You were told all your life, be a good Soviet citizen, go to school, go to university, do your job, do what you're told. And you did, and you had a decent life. And suddenly all of that's over, right? It was extremely traumatic, extremely shocking. And Vladimir Putin is widely seen in Russia as the person who ended that chaos. He comes in, he ends the war in Chechnya, he deals with the threat of terrorism. Uh, he stabilizes the country economically, mainly because oil prices are extremely high. And so he's able to share some of that wealth with the people. And so, yes, of course, and also importantly as well, he stabilizes the country by nationalizing the crime and corruption. Crime and corruption doesn't end, it just becomes controlled and it is exercised through the state. He is the person who is the chief oligarch and he has other oligarchs under him who are all appointed. They're all appointed. There is no such thing as an independent. Uh, there is no real private property at that level in Russia. If you're a billionaire, you're not really a billionaire. You're a billionaire as long as you are faithful to the regime, mm. right? So it's controlled. That rampant sort of uh, capitalism, exploitative capitalism that we saw in the 90s is over in Russia. It's controlled. It's nationalized. So he's widely seen as having brought stability. And the worst of it is, John, is that this layers on top Russian history in which every time there's been instability of some kind or almost every time what happens is a foreign invasion some kind of deep deep uh, social uh, discord strife etc there's a period in Russian history called times of trouble mm. and this is the thing every child is taught about at school, and this, this was the time the, the, the Poles and the Lithuanians, whoever it was, came and, and took over our country and humiliated us, and we, this great people, were under the boot, and before that, we were under the Mongols, and Russian history is all about these periods of chaos and instability in which some external force comes in and ruins us. And all it takes is a strong leader who's gonna come in, stabilize things, and take control. So if the only thing in your mind when you hear the word democracy is the 1990s, why on earth would you want to go back there? Can you give us a bit of a feel as to why the Russian experience with democracy was so different? I'm thinking of Peter Hitchens, who lived there for many years and said that decades of atheistic communism stripped the soul out of, of the people and they became perhaps very ill-equipped, I'm putting maybe words in his mouth, to understand how to make democracy work. Uh, and, and so what you got was a, a very perverted form of doc democracy and, if you like, crony, crony capitalism rather than real capitalism. You've touched on it in your writings. The very wrong people, the, ver the people that decent Russian citizens would have seen as, as, as crooks and, 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 and lowlife, suddenly, under this new form of capitalism, had all the wealth and the power. And, and I remember 25 years ago running into some of them in Europe thinking, these are not the sort of people that you'd expect to be wealthy and influential. You no. wouldn't trust them as far as you could throw them. Well, they're common criminals, most of them. Yeah, quite. Yeah. Uh, I, look, I, I, don't, I can't give you an exact answer. Of It's a very complicated question. The other things I, I didn't even mention in my previous answer is you also had a massive financial crisis, mm. several of them, yeah. defaults, yeah. ruble, de all, all kinds of inflation. In 1998, John, not 1991, 1998, inflation was 84%. 84%. 84%, right. So we're talking about a society that is completely unstable and unpredictable. Uh, I don't know exactly. I think one of the difficulties was, and this probably would have happened no matter what and no matter what country it was, when you go from state ownership of everything, mm. you've got to remember yeah, 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 in the yeah. Soviet Union, 
nobody owned anything. Yeah. You did not have mm. private property. You were mm. given an apartment, yep. but it wasn't yours to own. It was allocated to you by the state, mm. right? Um, all, all the manufacturing plants, the oil refineries, all of that was owned by the people, quote unquote, right? How do you go from that to a market economy in which it's private property? Well, someone has to own it. And in a situation like that, where, uh, you know, one of the corroding effects of communism on people's minds is it completely strips everybody of any morality because it's uh, man is wolf to man, as they say. It's about what you can do because everything is about bribes, corruption. Can I get this? Can I get that? Because uh, the market mechanisms of going, well, look, I have this thing and you have $10, let's exchange, doesn't work. I have a thing, you have $10, but it's not money I want. I want a favor from you when I need one, and everything becomes about that. And so you've got a, a, you've got a huge amount of assets to divide and a deeply corrupt mentality that exists uh, already in place. Of course, that those assets, that wealth is going to accumulate in the hands of a small minority of people who are prepared to rob, steal, murder, and, and do everything that they need to do to achieve it. Um, I thought when I read your recent uh, material on all of this that uh, the point that really, the thing that really proved up what you were saying was the direct correlation between the age of Russians mm. and the degree to which they were prepared to support mm. Mr. Putin. Younger Russians have quite a different view to older Russians who really experienced the horrors of the 90s. Uh, they do. Uh, that's not to say, by the way, just still 50% of young Russians, according to official polling anyway, support uh, Putin. You've got to be careful with opinion polls in totalitarian regimes. Yeah. I, I always give this example, uh, or at least dictate, you know, maybe totalitarian is going a little far, but authoritarian dictatorship style regimes. You know, Ceausescu in, in Romania, for example, had a 93% approval rating the day before he was overthrown and summarily executed. Right. So opinion polling in these kind of countries mm -hmm. is not as reliable, but there's a lot of support in, in among young Russian people too. Um, it's just lower than it is elsewhere. And, and uh, you probably start to see it actually go up now, John, because uh, of the, the mass campaign of propaganda that's happening in Russia. It, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to make this comparison, but I do think it's accurate. So I, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting Vladimir Putin is Hitler or that Russia is Nazi Germany or anything of the kind. But you've got to understand 80% of Russians get their news from television exclusively. 80%. Yeah. No, right. None of this Twitter, yeah. newspaper, whatever. Television exclusively. Russia does not have any more a single independent TV channel. Yeah. Does not have a single independent, not, one. not yeah. one. Radio channel, newspapers, they've all been shut down. All of them. Uh, Children as young as three and four and five in kindergartens are being lined up for photo shoots with this Z thing. Teachers, I know this personally because I have friends in Russia who are in the teaching, they're required to give a daily or weekly update on the quote-unquote special operation in Ukraine. So children are being indoctrinated with this stuff in, and the teachers that they are learning their maths and whatever from are the ones delivering it to them, lining them up for photo shoots, etc. So the level of propaganda in Russia is Goebbels-like. Uh, and of course, the, some of the messaging is, is hitting all the sweet spots of, of Russian mentality, which is we're under attack, we're fighting Nazism again, just like we did in, in the 1940s. And we are the ones that defeated the Nazis, etc., uh, etc. Et so uh, I don't see support for Putin going down until, uh, until and unless things change dramatically. So that's a really interesting thing. You've been monitoring what the Russian people, and you understand what it's hap what's happening as a result of that mm. in a way that we haven't been. We, we've not been at seeing and hearing what the Russians are seeing mm. and hearing. You've been monitoring their media quite closely, I understand. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, um, you yourself have done a lot of interviews on this subject now, and whether you have intended it or not, as I alluded to earlier, You've now actually emerged as one of the most insightful uh, British analysts on what's happening. Can I ask you how that varies from um, the coverage of the conflict in the, in the broader UK and Western media? Uh, do, do you think we're getting more real or not? 
in our understanding and our coverage. Well, as you know, I'm a massive critic of the mainstream media yeah. uh, on, on many different issues uh, over the last... In fact, trigonometry on the set of which you sit is really comes out of going, well, look, we, we're constantly being told things that aren't entirely accurate and our country is being misrepresented and the things that are happening politically are being misrepresented. Uh, I think on, on the situation in Ukraine, my main criticism, if I had one of the mainstream media, is not so much that they're misrepresenting what's happening, but you know, there's this, if it bleeds, it leads effect, where we're focusing very heavily on the individual tragedies, and they are horrific, and of course they yeah. deserve coverage. Uh, but I think the, the bigger strategic picture and what's actually happening and why isn't really being covered properly. That's my main criticism. Uh, I think, obviously, with in a war, truth will be the first casualty. So there's a lot of propaganda flying around from both sides. Uh, and the Western media have fallen for a few just... Uh, you know, the, the story with Snake Island and a few other things that uh, where the Ukrainians are obviously fighting a war of survival. And so they're going to, they need to motivate their people. They need to create new myths. And I don't use that word derogatory in a derogatory mm. way. They need to create narratives yeah. about we are defending our land. And sometimes they're going to say things that aren't entirely true because this is what happens in war. And some of the Western media have been a bit too, uh, too keen to rep to reproduce some of that. Um, but broadly speaking, I, I haven't had my main criticism, as I say, has been that we're not really being told about what's happening, why it's happening uh, in terms of the actual war. And we're focusing a little bit too much on the individual and slightly perhaps irrelevant, uh, de no, irrelevant is the wrong word, uh, the, the details that don't tell us anything about the bigger picture. That's my main concern, I would say. Tell me... Um, uh I think one of the uh, the things that you've commented on when we were talking earlier is that it's hard for us to understand in the West what happens in the East, what, what really happens there, what those cultures are like, because actually Ukraine is an incredibly resource-rich country. Mm. Um, that's of interest to Australians. For example, it's the fifth largest grain trader in the world. Australia's number six. Mm. Uh, and food inflation, even availability, is going to be a horrendous problem, I think, coming up unless something unforeseen comes along to resolve some of these issues. Um, yet, you know, here we are, we're all great admirers of Zelensky for very good reason and of the fighting spirit of the Ukrainians. It's very easy to forget, though, that they are different various societies. They're, they're not like us, that despite being resource rich, for example, I understand the people of Ukraine were poorer than the Russians, despite all of those resources, that corruption was rife. Um, and in many ways, we need to go into this with eyes open. They're very different societies to ours. Yes, I think of all the post-Soviet countries, other than Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, which were never really part of that world anyway, they were just annexed by Stalin in, in, in the 1930s and 40s, um, the Ukraine has done the most to move in a westward direction. But of course, people shouldn't delude themselves. If you remember a few minutes ago, we were talking about how Putin nationalized corruption and took it under his personal control. In Ukraine, that never quite happened. So Ukraine is uh, still, in, to some extent, what has been, we'll see what emerges on the other side of this conflict. Uh, and I, I very much hope that the westward, the acceleration of the already existing pro-Western movements in Ukraine results in a freer and more transparent uh, and economically more transparent society. But, but of course, Ukraine is and has been in the grips of battles between different oligarchs who control different parts of the country, different industries, etc. So, oh yeah, of course, Ukraine's a corrupt country. It's Eastern Europe. What, what did people expect? It's not Norway. It's not Sweden. It's, it's Eastern Europe. Um, and the legacy of the Soviet Union and, and everything that had come before that. Uh, and you've got to remember as well, this is a country that's been ravaged by war repeatedly over and over. It's not a country that's enjoyed stability for centuries, like a country like Britain, for example, right, which has not been invaded, hasn't had its territory occupied by an op occupying enemy force, etc. Uh, so, the, you know, it's not going to be a Western style democracy. Uh, but the movement has been happening in that direction since 1991. So, um, I remember my uh, grandfather, a Russian speaker all his life, a Ukrainian, 
uh, the moment the Soviet Union collapsed, the first thing he did is started speaking Ukrainian. And I remember it so well because he used to annoy the hell out of me because I couldn't understand. And this was my beloved grandfather. Um, and I, I often give this example. Uh, we didn't have double glazing. Is that the same term yes, in Australia? Yeah, yeah. In the Soviet Union, we didn't have it. Mm. And when it first appeared in Ukraine, do you know what they called it? No. Euro windows. Right. Euro windows, yeah. because everything that was good, yeah. that was developed technologically more mm. new and, and sophisticated, was seen as coming from the West. Mm. That's the direction Ukraine took. Russia mm. didn't take the same direction. Russia, uh, in Russia, people are much more skeptical uh, and antagonistic towards the West, generally speaking. They see the West as interfering and meddling in, in, in their affairs. Mm. Whereas in Ukraine, it was much more widely perceived as helpful. So that's one of the reasons that Ukraine has moved towards the West, uh, while, while Russia hasn't. Uh, but, but yeah, these are countries in Eastern Europe. There's going to be a lot of corruption and a lot of other things that we wouldn't see in a Western democracy. Well, let's give credit where credit's due. Mm. Uh, it, it's a, a very admirable thing that they've stood up the way they have. They yeah. want control of their own destiny. Mm. That's a tremendous start. Absolutely. They want their sovereignty. Um, Putin, and I suspect his friends in Beijing, must have been truly stunned of what they ran into. Uh, 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 you know, uh, well-trained people, I understand the Brits did a lot of the training, so their chains of command worked better. Mm. You know, if a senior officer was knocked out, the next knew what to do, right down to a common soldier, whereas in Russia you take the senior bloke out, mm. no one else knows what to do. Mm. Then there's the technology of those Western weapons. They've, they've, we're all watching with enormous interest. I mean, you've got relatively modest weapons wiping out tanks and sinking capital ships. Mm. This must have been an incredible surprise to Putin. And does that make it even more dangerous in one way? Or does it mean that they, both the Russians and the Chinese are saying, whoa, the West's not quite as degenerate as we thought? I don't know uh, what Vladimir Putin's thinking. Mm. I think there are very few people in the world <laughs> who know exactly what he's thinking. I think it seems to me, at least, that, uh, as you know full well, every system of government has its strengths and weaknesses. One of the big strengths of an authoritarian system like the one that Russia has is the ability to plan long term, the same with, with, with Beijing. They're able to think 20, 30 years into the future and plan things and put things in place in a way that a democratic society simply is unable to do. Uh, but the drawbacks of that system, particularly where, where there's a single leader uh, who wields complete authority over everybody in that country, is that they become... Uh, someone that people are afraid to speak truth to. Uh, speaking truth to power in a democracy means you might lose your job. Speaking truth to power in Russia means you might lose your head. And under those circumstances, yeah. what you create is a structure where people are being told, you are being told as the leader what you want to hear as mm -hmm. opposed to what the truth is, which is why you saw immediately after the invasion several of the key intelligence people uh, under Putin being put under house arrest. And there's a lot of internal recriminations now happening in Russia because it's quite clear he was told a lot of lies about yeah. what would happen. He was told Ukrainians would welcome mm. the Russian liberators. Well, that hasn't happened. It's happened quite, the welcome has been rather different mm. and so on and so forth. So that's part of it. I think also we shouldn't underestimate uh, the impact of morale. Uh, on all of this. I, I'm not a historian, but from the history that I've read, for example, the, the, the Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union was extremely successful in the first year and a half of the war. And part of that was the Soviet soldiers didn't want to fight for Stalin, the man who just massacred and butchered and imprisoned their families. Uh, and so one of the things you saw is the soldiers unwilling mm. to fight. Well, imagine that on top of that, you now have, you're being sent to a foreign country where you're supposed to do things and risk your life. Uh, we've seen quite a lot, I think, that the morale is not very high among Russian troops. Mm. Uh, if you know that your generals are the one who sold your rations off uh, or for money uh, and you are now having to raid Ukrainian supermarkets for food, I don't imagine that inspires a strong fighting spirit either. Uh, whereas the Ukrainians, of course, are fighting to defend their homes and their land. So I think that's been a big difference as well. And as you say, you know, we're seeing as well militarily, and I'm not an expert on it, but I think we're seeing that, um, you know, if, if, a, if a handheld missile like a Javelin or, a, or an Enlaw or whatever can take out a, a, a multi-million dollar tank um, and they are effective at doing this, you know, that, that, that would suggest that the Ukrainians are, are, are going to be able to defend themselves more effectively than some people thought perhaps.
Now, I see you as somebody who uh, really understands the West and loves it, but the title of your book's very interesting, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, coming up, mm. and it brings to mind a saying uh, that I heard someone uh, utter the other day, just because I disagree with you doesn't mean I don't love you. Indeed, it might mean that I do love you. Mm. And what I, what I hear is a tone of wake up in the West. You've been a great critic of wokeness. And perhaps you see that, and I certainly do, as a product of an indulgent society that hasn't been terribly realistic about the big challenges confronting it. I think that's true, uh, but I don't disagree with the West. I very much agree with the West and with the things that underpin it. And That's the, my point. Yes. You're a great respecter of it, yes. but as an outsider, yeah. we should honour the fact that it's often someone outside the family, for example, who can pinpoint, hey, listen, mate, you, you know, do you realise there's an area here that you need to think about because mm. you're not helping your own family or whatever it is. You know, yeah, you, you, and, and look, there are plenty of people in... And you the, say it because you care. Uh, absolutely, I do. And yeah. uh, as you know, my wife's about to give birth to our, our first child. Congratulations. So, thank you very much. And uh, I... Um, you know, we mentioned Alexander Solzhenitsyn earlier. Yeah. And one of the things that he did, and he, he kind of... Um, he turned a lot of people off in the West when he came from the Soviet Union. He went to America and he was perceived as sort of lecturing Americans about their moral decadence. And, mm. and um, I, I'm not someone who's, I'm not an outsider here to tell you how to run your country and run your life. I'm one of you now. Yeah. I'm here and my children are going to live in this country. And that's why I care deeply about what's going to happen in this society. So uh, all I'm trying to do is remind people of the things that are underpin the value, the values, the freedoms, the prosperity that we enjoy here. They didn't fall out of the sky, John, as you well know. Yep. They come from centuries of ideological discussion, of war. People have bled to make this country as prosperous and as free as it is. And I think we owe it to ourselves to not forget that and to remember the value of everything that, 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 that's been created here. These are not accidents. It is not an accident that Russian people like Sergey Brin uh, have to leave the Soviet Union with their family and go to America, and that's where they start Google. It's not an accident that people have to flee China and, and Russia and emigrate and build their businesses and create the things that they create elsewhere. These are not accidents. The West is not more technologically advanced by virtue of some kind of historical misunderstanding. There are reasons for that, right? And of course, part of that reason is Western countries have been dominant in the world. But another part is the system of government and the way that we do business in the West has facilitated that. And uh, I don't want us to lose that. And I don't want my children to, to live in a society that falls behind. You know, uh, this, this is one of the big concerns I have uh, with many people in the West is they... Uh, we've been so successful in the West, we've been so comfortable in the West that we forget that at the end of the day, life is a competition. And there, as we talked about last time, when you interviewed me the first time, I made this point. People in Russia and China are not sitting around doing identity politics. As I said at the time, they're getting ready. And now you're starting to see the Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, talked only days ago about how the purpose of what they're doing in Ukraine is to push America out of Eastern Europe, and it is to end the American global dominance in the world. That's what people want, and make no mistake about it, they're coming for what we have. And I've tried to make this point to people over and over and over again. We don't live in some magical rainbow-colored world in which everyone wants to live happily and, and trade and whatever. Yes, that's part of it, but there are, there are a lot of people in the world who just want what we have, and they're coming. Our Prime Minister deserves a lot more credit for his framing up of the very things you're talking about. He's talked about an arc of autocracy uh, and we need to be alert to that. And it, it, this is what's so valuable about what you're saying because you understand what autocracy is like. Mm. You can see what we've got and why it's worth fighting for. I, I feel that very strongly. I think it's really important. Uh, and w you know, one of the things that I think we, it's very difficult not to take for granted things to which you've never experienced an alternative. If you've always lived in a prosperous democracy, how it's like the sky. Mm. What, you don't expect the sky to fall down upon you, right? In the same way, you don't expect democracy to end. You don't expect your freedoms to be curtailed. But we've seen even over the last two years that uh, that um, softness that we've developed and that comfort 
causes us, I think, to be vulnerable. Uh, we are so attached to, to safety and comfort and stability that we will throw away our rights uh, and freedoms when push comes to shove. And that worries me. You touched on the fact that it took years, centuries, and bloodshed mm. and a lot of deep, deep thinking and what have you uh, to, to develop the institutions of freedom in the West. We're now very cynical about our leaders. That's dangerous. When we become cynical about the institutions, that's even more dangerous. I had a searing moment seven or eight years ago. I, um, through a, a charity I was involved with, embedded myself in a tertiary education institution in Myanmar, the old Burma. Hmm. And after I'd been there about three or four days, I was about to leave. It was really noticeable, many of them, they saw me as some sort of quasi-authority figure. You know, I'd been something in a Western country and they were a bit wary of me. The sort of natural leaders in a class came up to me afterwards. You could tell they were the natural leaders. And their spokesman, uh, a young man, looked me in the eye and he said, in terms of great exasperation, we'd just like to ask you, we think the generals, they were tragically wrong, are going to open up and we'll get some democracy. And he said, how do we build a democracy? How do we build a system of elections uh, and what have you that work? How do we build a justice system? How do we build a welfare system? How do we build an education system? How do we build, fund, plan for infrastructure? Mm. And I thought, these are such big questions. And all I could say was it took us years, centuries to do it in the West. But we could throw it all away far too quickly. Mm. Well, I think that's true, we could do, but I also have never been more optimistic mm. in the last few years than I, ha I am now. It could be just the the upcoming fatherhood is, is forcing me to take an optimistic view, which is extremely unnatural mm. for me, both as an individual and as a Russian. But um, <laughs> uh, I wonder whether, I've been very surprised by the West's reaction to Ukraine. Yeah. Very pleasantly so, yeah. John. I, when the, the invasion happened, Francis and I, my co-host, sat mm. here and, and we talked about live or about what was happening. And I said many things which have turned out to be correct. I said some things which we are yet to see if they're correct. And I said some things which haven't turned out to be right. For example, I said NATO's over. Mm. I don't mm. think that's true yeah. anymore. We've seen a strength of response from the West that's been unexpected. Yeah. Now we can quibble with, you know, should Germany have sold off or closed down their nuclear power plants? Probably not, mm. right? And I've been saying this for years. Mm. Should they have made themselves as reliant on Russian oil and gas as they have? No, they shouldn't. But generally the reaction from the West has been far stronger than mm. what I expected. I don't know if you were surprised by it as well. Uh, very much so. And, and like you, delighted. Yeah. The greatest danger is we drop the ball, get bored, and back off. Yeah. So Germany, we haven't done that. No. We haven't done that. But there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go. But Germany paying a very high price at this point, very impressive. And a left of centre government with a green foreign minister is saying we've got a double defence expenditure. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, it's the wake up call perhaps that the West is needed. Yeah. So I'm optimistic on that. I think on the cultural stuff, we're starting to see shifts. You know, I don't want to get too too deep into the weeds of the culture war, but I've said from day one that I thought the trans issue would be what broke this whole thing. And I think slowly but surely you're starting to see that as you see waves of people who've transitioned because they were encouraged yeah. to, uh, and now regretting it. Mm. Tragic stories, by the way, John. These are oh. people who've mutilated their own bodies and now coming back. And by the way, look, we've had a ton of trans people on our show who deserve to be treated respectfully, who deserve to be uh, enjoy every opportunity and freedom in life, just as all the rest of us do. Uh, but some of the excesses of that ideology, not the people, but the ideology, we're now starting to see the consequences of that, mm. about which we've been warning for some time. You had uh, the Kira Bell case here. We had the Kira Bell case, but there's thousands of people like Kira behind that as well, yeah. you've got to remember. Uh, and you're starting to see them pop up now. And, and hopefully, the, you know, we can stop all this craziness before it gets too late and before the numbers just become astronomical. But, you know, we're starting to see uh, enough pushback against some of these excesses that that at least the pendulum is slowing perhaps, maybe even starting to swing the, another direction. And so my concern is that we don't overswing back because there is a risk always that if you antagonize people uh, along racial lines, 
if you antagonize people along sexuality lines, you end up with a position where we actually start to roll back some of the advances we've had. And, and instead of going, well, look, maybe the trans ideology has gone too far. We've got to protect our children from being encouraged to transition in one way or another. People start to actually go, well, this whole LGBTQ thing and gay people, all of that gets thrown out with the bathwater. Got to be careful. So that I think is actually one of the concerns for me as well. As we adjust and, and our culture starts to shift perhaps back somewhere or in a different, healthier direction, we've got to make sure we don't overswing as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm starting to see some positive moves on that side of things as well. Uh, so I'm optimistic. We've got to be optimistic, John. We must be optimistic. And uh, of course, I, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I want people in the West to wake up and to recognize the, the, the tremendous value of what we have here. But I also have to say, you know, I hope it's your children and grandchildren and my children and grandchildren who are the ones who are building that better society. And if we take responsibility, which we should do, for making sure that we are educating our mm children correctly, which we haven't been for quite a long time, if they understand history, not just British history or colonial history, but history, John, history. History means context. It means you understand not only what the British Empire was doing in the 18th century, but also what the Russian Empire was doing in the 18th century mm -hmm. and what the Arab slave traders were doing while the Western colonial powers were engaging in the horrific uh, transatlantic slave trade. That's history. Mm. If we can teach our children that, if they can understand the context, I think there's a very real chance that the West can prosper again. I couldn't agree more because you've really hit on something that strikes me as really important here. Um, who says slavery is wrong? Where did that idea come from? Mm. It was endemic in just about every culture and every society across the world. And we're right here in the city where it was determined by a culture that it was wrong. Mm. And a massive investment was made in ending it, not just in this country, which is the most powerful on earth at the time, but in obliterating it everywhere else. But that part of the story is not told. It's contextualization. Mm. So now we've got a move to de-statue, I understand, in Edinburgh, um, uh, the uh, uh, Livingston, you know, the famous uh, African explorer mm. and abolitionist, mm on the basis that when he was 10 years old, effectively a, a slave labourer, I suppose, he worked in a cotton factory and the cotton would have been produced by slaves. Mm. Where's the contextualization? That's the point you're making. That uh, is I, the I point I'm making. I have a whole chapter about slavery in the book and I talk about my grandfather being taken a slave labourer mm. to Germany. The fact that, as I told you, my great grandfather, who was in the gulag as mm. the engineer, do you remember we talked about yes. it earlier? Yeah. He served his sentence com on completely spurious grounds of 10 years, and he was kept in the mm. camps for another three years because he was needed. Mm. He was a slave, mm. and this was in living memory, right? So we shouldn't pretend that slavery um, is in any way unique to the West. Mm. It's an awful, awful thing, John. Uh, oh, but, but every society has engaged in it throughout history, and that's the context through which we need to look at ourselves. Uh, it's easier for me, being a dark-skinned immigrant, to talk about it, which is one of the reasons that I wrote the book, because I think there are plenty of people in the West who disagree and criticize and critique some of these cultural movements that we've seen. But I think as an outsider, I have perhaps a little bit more leeway, and, and I can give a bit more context that people aren't necessarily aware of, because we've been guilt-tripped. We've been guilt-tripped about our past. You, you don't have any responsibility for things that happened 400 years ago. And I don't think anyone should feel guilt because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. I think the reintroduction of racialized thinking into our societies mm -hmm. is one of the worst things that we could do to ourselves. That's why I've been pushing back so strongly against mm -hmm. it. I don't want my black friends to be treated differently because they're black. And I don't want my white friends to be treated differently because they're white. And the fact that we now live in a society where it's become acceptable to say, oh, you're a white man or, or whatever. And that is somehow a dismissive thing that, that like that Im implies with it that you have some sort of lower value in the hierarchy of who's allowed to express an opinion or whatever. Mm. I think it's outrageous. Mm. I think it's disgusting and I think it needs to end. And I am determined uh, that as a result of the conversations that we have on this show and you have on your show and the broader leaking of that into the public domain, because I think a lot of people are fed up of it, frankly, yeah. John, uh, I am determined that that ends. Yeah. We've got to go back to the point, and I, I sort of tweeted a quip about it the other day. I said, I, I, I have a dream that one day um, the, our ideas will be judged on their merit as opposed to the color of our skins. Yeah. We should be able to say what we think yeah. uh, and irrespective of where we come from, mm. that is the Western idea. That is to me why the West is worth preserving. It is the only part of the world, John, 
in the history of the world where that idea has actually been embraced, ever, ever. And, you know, there are challenges with building multi-ethnic societies like the ones we have in the West. It's dealt very differently in other countries, as you know. In China, it's very different. In Russia, it's the same. Uh, most of the rest of the world operates on a very simple basis. There is an ethnic group that is the dominant one of that society. Everybody else is some sort of second-class citizen. And that's the way that it is. We are trying to do better here. We're trying desperately. And it comes with difficulties and it comes with challenges and it comes with problems. But we are desperately trying. And we should be encouraged and celebrated for that. Not talked about like we're the worst people in the world because we're not. It's the Western liberal democracies that give people an opportunity to correct the things that need correcting. Mm. I think is what you're saying. Absolutely. That's gold. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, COVID had people drawing all sorts of conclusions mm. about what a sort of society we've become. Uh, frankly, I think there's a lot of nonsense out there, particularly in my own country, where you've had everything from uh, state governments that have handled it well through to state governments that have handled it terribly. But I'm not sure in the end the Australian people haven't found the, the people. I think they got there ahead of the politicians to a sensible balance. And, and I think the same in Britain, actually. You got there. It was messy. It was untidy. Maybe it was like Bismarck's sausage making. You know, you don't want to see it and it wasn't a good thing to go through. But I, I'd quibble where, with where that somewhat. Where are we now? I'd quibble with that somewhat, John. I okay. think we went way too far in this country. Right. We went way too far. And I'm not talking about you, the medical side. You've written side. about this, haven't you? Something you said went viral. Yes. I, I wrote a, a long Twitter thread which became an article, which became mm. a video on our YouTube mm. channel, uh, which explained why people are hesitant about taking mm. the vaccine. Uh, and my critique there was mainly about how we've been misled by the media for so long. It's understandable mm. that some people are hesitant about the messaging they're hearing. Mm. And I, I think that's a legitimate point. But I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is we had... Uh, in this country, a genuine conversation about forcing people, individual free citizens, mm. to inject something into their body because the government's decided that this is what they must mm. do. That is a line that is, in my opinion, way too far. I don't agree with the government being able to force you to inject something into your body. I agree with that. Right? Yep. And, yep. and we had that. Freedom of conscience is critical in the end. You've got to, to be able to, to decide what goes in and out of your body. I, I'm, that's why I am in favor of, I know we, we probably disagree on this, but uh, decriminalizing certain types of drugs, because I think that is your freedom to do that, even if it's to your detriment. We are free citizens, and we're free to make decisions for ourselves, even if they have negative consequences for us. And I felt that pushing that line was inappropriate yeah. and it was wrong, and I was out in Parliament Square yeah. with a tiny number of people who felt the same as I did, not because I was some wacko who thought the vaccines are, you know, some globalist conspiracy to, to whatever, whatever the nonsense was that was being spread around. I felt the lines about our freedoms and our rights as individuals were, were being crossed. And the reason I love the West, which is why I've written the book, is I think this is one of the few societies that respects your right as an individual to make your own choices. So I think we went too far. Now, did we row back from that eventually? Thankfully, yes, we did. But I thought that the amount of protesting and screaming and shouting and writing to members of parliament, you know, we people watch our show, politicians, whatever, having to contact them and go, hey, what the hell are you doing? I've had these conversations with ministers in the government. What the hell are you doing? Who do you think you are? Why do you think you have the right mm. to tell a person in this country, you must take this injection, which carries risks? They're tiny risks, but they exist. Mm. And if you're a healthy young person, you should be free to make that decision for yourself. Mm. I don't see any reason that the government should be pursuing that sort of strategy, discriminating against people uh, for not choosing what the government would like them to do. So I think we went too far. And I think there are many countries like Austria and Germany that locked unvaccinated people in the homes that went way too far. Yeah, I should backtrack a bit. There was quite a bit of that, particularly in some states in Australia, yes. and it's had international attention. Yes. I happen to come from a state where I think it was better handled in mm. Australia. We were like America, we're a federation. But I think my real point, the reason that I sounded as I did, is that I actually think in, our, in my own country, the people got there before the politicians. I think you're saying the same thing. They shouldn't have had to make so much noise. But my impression is the people got there before the politicians and said, this is ridiculous. I we don't know that's like true here we're either. not going to live like it this. It would be the right thing for me to say in order to be liked by the largest number of people watching this. But actually, I don't think that's true either. The opinion polls that we saw in this country, the, the, the people, the 20% of the public at one point want, wanted all nightclubs permanently shut down right. forever. 
irrespective of COVID, there was a significant proportion of people in this country who wanted everyone to be forced to wear a mask forever, irrespective of COVID. I think a lot of people lost lost the plot over COVID and I don't blame them. They were locked in their home for two years. They were told there was a terrifying disease and people were dying and it was understandable. But uh, I think we panicked, John. I think we panicked as people. I think we panicked as a society. I think our governments panicked and overreacted uh, and did some things they never should have done. And I hope that we have the right lockdown inquiries to look at the scientific evidence uh, and we draw our conclusions from that. I don't think we should ever again be in this position. Now, look, if this was Ebola that was spreading like COVID, we'd probably have a different conversation. But I just thought uh, that we reacted in a way that was disproportionate, uh, people and, and government. And I hope that we've learned some lessons from that. I really, really do, because to me, I think it's a very real threat that in order to buy more safety, we give away more and more of our freedoms. And that is not a trade-off that we should be making in the West because the West is built on very different principles. Okay. I think that's a really valuable set of insights. And and I simply, I I guess I plead my position only on the basis that I think in the end in my country, the bulk of people got there before all the politicians. I'm glad to hear that. I I don't know anything about what happened in Australia. I may be wrong. You know, I have a great interest in history and often it's not until you can look back over several years because the test is, will we allow something like this to happen again? Quite. You know, next time round, will we be more measured and more sensible? And and the thing that does anger me about the debate in Australia was the way in which most of the media, which is left of centre, refused to talk about the costs of what we were doing, mental health, young people, um, and frankly, economic and physical health too. You got yeah. to remember there yeah. are, there were people who were. Yeah, there suffering. wasn't a balance. No, and yeah. that's because we overreacted and panicked, as I said. Yeah. Which you can understand when people are scared. Yeah. You know, things are difficult. People will panic. But I think we've got to make sure that uh, we are more sensible next time, uh, yeah. as people and as governments. Now, I know that, uh, you know, for reasons that we need to elaborate on, you're doing a little less of the, the satire and the comedy that you're very, very good at. But you know a bit about the entertainment community mm. and so forth. Has it been changed, in your view, the way we, what we look for in humour, the way it's presented, the, the way we look at ourselves, which satire and humour is so good at? Has it been changed as a result of COVID? Uh, I don't know if it's been changed as a result of COVID. I think it's been changing for some time anyway. Yeah, we, you've touched on this before. And you're not alone in this country. That wokeness is killing our ability to... Yeah, I, I think what it's not killing our ability to make jokes because on, the, on trigonometry, we put out a satirical piece every yeah. week and Francis and I do a live stream three nights a week where we do the most outrageous accents and the crazy <laughs> jokes and, and really irreverent stuff that probably would be too much even for you, John, if you, if you don't mind me saying. But um, so you can still do it. Yeah. Can you do it in the mainstream? Can you do it on television? Can you do it on radio? Probably not. And so what I see is a split the the mainstream uh, comedy is getting blander and less interesting and the the real exciting stuff is in the comedy clubs that are that are pursuing a different way of looking at things and it's it's on the internet mm-hmm. so i think uh, i think there are some positive changes happening on that front as well that i see you know you you get youtube channels with millions of subscribers who are doing something different to the mainstream and they're very successful because the mainstream doesn't provide it so often in drama down through the age, the fool, the person playing the fool in, in, in the king's court is only playing the fool. Mm. They're actually brilliant. And they're using that humour to expose poor thinking, absurdity, in this sort of suffocating atmosphere that you sometimes get now in the public arena in Western countries and its impact on, on humourlessness. Do you, do you, you know, just to sort of almost repeat the question, do you think the comedian and uh, and comedy uh, have, has some sort of unique power to draw people towards truth or to at least expose absurdity? You know, I'll maybe answer with an anecdote. You had a version of yeah. Spitting Image in Australia. I think it's called right. Rubbery Figures. It's a long time ago now. And uh, we had Spitting Image in the UK, obviously. Yep. Uh, and we actually, believe it or not, had a period in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin's government, where we had spitting image, the equivalent, it was called kukli, which means uh, puppets, in Russia. For the first time ever, yeah. the politicians that you saw on your television mm. would be made fun of and mm. ridiculed and car- caricatured on television. The first thing, the first thing that Vladimir Putin did when he came into office is he shut it down. Yeah. 
That tells you everything you need to know about the power of comedy. Authoritarians and dictators, that's the first thing they do. They shut down comedy, they shut down literature that criticizes and mocks them, that satirizes them, because it is powerful. Uh, and so I think, uh, of course, comedy has, has power. And thank you for calling me a fool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think that at all. I'm kidding. <laughs> I remember once uh, as a young MP, uh, I, uh, I tried to answer a question seriously from a kid in a classroom. He said, oh, are you offended by rubbery figures? Of course, I featured. Um, and I tried to answer the question in terms of um, the government of the day being rubbery with economic figures. I made a complete fool of myself. <laughs> <laughs> the kid was driving in something completely yeah. different. Um, How was that for you? It, what? Being a character in these uh, sketches. Uh, the honest answer is sometimes it hurt. Yeah. And sometimes it was just downright funny. Yeah. And there were times when I thought, I've created an impression there. I, you know, I, I, I deserve that. Mm. I need to wake up. Right. I, you know, I thought it was valuable. So that's the power of As long of as it doesn't satire. spell into, there's a difference, isn't there, between genuine humour mm. and, and cruel cynicism. Yeah. And so much of the humour we get yeah. now is just weaponized in the age of identity politics. Mm. So it's not helpful. No. It's destructive. And you also it's one-sided. It's one-sided. It's one-sided. See, I don't mind a bit of cruelty to politicians because I mm. think often they deserve it. Forgive yep. me, John. I agree. No, no, I agree. But I as agree. long as it's balanced up, yep. as long as you, everybody's fair game, yep. then I think you go, well, look, they, yep. were, they were harsh to me this week, but next week they're doing yep. Julia Gillard and or whoever it would have been at the that's time. Right. And that's fair. Yeah. And we can we can work with that. I think that's the biggest problem in mainstream comedy is it's extremely one-sided. Yeah. Extremely one-sided. That is true in Australia. Yeah. At the time of rubbery figures, it wasn't. Quite. And that's and why you could take it in that way. And by the right. way, it's a useful tool to, to, to prick your ego a little bit as a politician. I think exactly. it's important. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. But today we need to employ it against not just politicians. It needs to be employed against many of the elites Quite. who are so dismissive of common sense in the common community, if I can yeah. put it that way. There's a lot of that in Australia. Yeah. I think it's probably alive and well here as well. It is. You recently wrote an article called The Age of Religion is Upon Us. Mm. Now, uh, many, of, uh, many of us would have thought that particularly here in Britain, the age of religion uh, has gone. But your argument is that the religious impulse for meaning in people is being filled by, by other things. Can you just fill us in on your thinking around this sort of um, what might be called God void? in people in our allegedly secular age and, and where you think that might be going? Well, it's an extremely unoriginal thought, John, yeah. to suggest that the, the God-shaped the God void in all of yeah. us it gets filled by other things when it's not filled by God. And, you know, I'm not a believer. I'm a non-believer myself. I'm agnostic, I think. Probably it's a word that doesn't accurately describe how I think about these things, but uh, I'm not I'm a non-believer. I don't go to church I don't think there's a bearded man in the sky who sits and judges all of us individually and wants Israel and Palestine to be a, a multi-millennium conflict I, I'm not convinced of that way of looking at the world um, but at the same time as I say, it's an unoriginal observation to note that when people lack some kind of structure to explain the things that we're unable to explain, we look for other things. And I, I see particularly in the political realm where some of the ideas we've talked about, like wokeness and a, a certain type of thinking about things, it's, it's uh, an ideology based on faith alone. And, and so we're moving in that direction on that side. And of course, on the other side, you now start to see in certain pockets of the right, uh, a new ideology and religious ideology emerging as well, which is having uh, had all our faith in the mainstream destroyed by lots of lies and misrepresentations and being called names for, for doing perfectly reasonable things and having perfectly reasonable opinions. There is now a sort of a very primitive religious, I almost feel like it's insulting to organized religion to suggest that that is a religious instinct. But if you think about primitive ways of thinking about spirituality and religion, there are ways to explain things that we lack the scientific and technological explanation for at the time. So if you're a person living 50,000 years ago and water starts falling from the sky, well, that's, it happens, but, but it is quite an impactful thing on your life. And you have no explanation of the formation of clouds and droplets and, and whatever. So you go, well, the angry man in the sky is punishing me for whatever. And I think you're starting to see now, particularly in pockets of the online sort of anti-establishment right, the belief 
in an overarching global conspiratorial forces that are taking over the world and they are punishing the West for its decadence and and, um, the embracing of wokeness. And really what COVID was all about was about government taking control of your life. And by the way, some governments tried. I just don't see that as a global conspiracy. but this global conspiratorial explanation, it is actually a very primitive religious way of looking at things. Uh, and I think that is a big part of what's happening on, on, on all sides of the political spectrum as we move further away from a set, a one way of looking at things that is imposed on us by society and by religion. Uh, we are opening ourselves up to, to a lot of cults. Uh, this cultishness on the left in terms of wokeness and this cultishness on the right in terms of the things I've just described. And I'm very aware of that because uh, religion is a very powerful thing and it can be used for good, uh, but it can also be used for evil. And I think uh, in this instance, all of these cults are very, very dangerous. Uh, I'm not going to argue with you on that. Uh, Let me just explore that a little bit. And reflecting identity politics, there are all sorts of Hmm. weird ideas starting to take hold. And I'm not sure the outcome isn't a great degree of despair, even cynicism in middle Australia, middle Britain. There's this breakdown of trust and of respect and people think, well, what do I do with it? You know, I talk to Australians, particularly in my generation, they say, oh, John, I was a great supporter of your party and of your government and what have you, but I'm just so cynical now. I'm so despairing. Mm. It's a problem, John. This Uh, lack of a common narrative. It's a problem. Now, I'm not saying that we need to get everyone to think uh, all the same things because that's something I'm very much uh, against in many ways. You have that common narrative in Russia and you have that common narrative in China. We should be able to think for ourselves and have different opinions and ideas. I know you weren't suggesting otherwise anyway. Um, I just... I don't have an answer to this one, I'm afraid. I think uh, social media has had a huge impact. And I know this from myself. I'm not always as respectful and kind to people as I should be, particularly online, uh, because you know it, it's a sort of perpetual battleground be- between people who don't matter to each other. That, that's part of the problem. It's yeah. taken that physical interaction out of it. Uh, and I would never say something to you in person that I might be tempted to say to you online. And it's something I struggle with, to be honest. I'm someone who has a bit of a temper and, and I'm trying to work on it uh, as best I can, but social media certainly doesn't help. Uh, I don't know what the answer is the, the, to that cynicism. Uh, people go, we need to rebuild trust in our mainstream media. Do we? Why would we rebuild trust in something that's not worthy of trust? They have to rebuild their trustworthiness first and then we mm. can trust them again. But that's a difficult process and I don't know how we get there. Well, yeah, you see, you raise something now that I've got to sort of, I have to push back on a little bit and say, Go for it. we've got to find, all right, put the media aside and put aside even if we don't trust our politicians. But what if we say we just don't trust our parliaments, we don't trust the institution, we don't trust the legal system, we don't trust oh, no. the education system? At the end of that road is ruin. I'm just saying, I don't know how you get off that path right now with the technological situation mm. we've got ourselves into. I suspect a lot of this is coming from modern technology. And I suspect a lot of the answers will come from new modern technology that uh, disincentivizes conflict somehow and that incentivizes respectful conversation. We don't have the tools for that now. We have the opposite tools that are driving us further apart. And how you do that is way above my pay grade. Yeah. Well, it's probably getting to the heart of the issue and I'll, I'll cease on this point, but I think that Western democracies and freedom depend upon an underlying foundational reason, if you like, for us to say whether I disagree with that person or not is irrelevant as to whether or not that person has worth and dignity. Mm. And, and, and that's our problem. On what basis now in this post-Christian age do we find an answer to the question of how do we get on with people when we deeply disagree? Right. And I think that's a fundamental problem. The problem you have in addressing that situation is that if you've just spent six years calling everyone a Nazi and a racist that you don't agree with, mm-hmm. why would those people now trust you sure. or respect you? And we've got ourselves into a big hole yeah. there because the reason many people are cynical and distrustful is they've been smeared and lied to. Yeah. 
I accept all of that. For a long time. And you can't do much with cynicism. That's the problem. We end up in a cynical place. The the difficulty I have is I can't sit here and go, I think we need to rebuild trust in the institutions because I don't see them as trustworthy. I'm not cynical. I don't open the BBC News website and go, this is all nonsense because it's on the BBC. I read it and try and make my own mind up about it. But we have to be honest and say that a lot of damage has been done and how you unwind that damage, I think, is a very, very difficult process. Uh, And as I say, I don't have the answer. Well, I think you're more of the answer than you think, uh, if I can pay you that compliment, because you're teasing out issues in a very honest and realistic way. And your concern that people live in freedom and dignity and so forth shines through. Give us a taste. Give us a teaser. You've got a book coming out in July. What should we know about it so that uh, we can decide whether to go and get a copy? Well, uh, I talk a lot in the book about things that you probably don't know about. uh, And I relate them to what's happening in the West. I mean, one of my central themes in the book is to relate my family history, my own experiences, the experience of my parents and my family, uh, whether that was being born in the Gulag or my grandfather being exiled from the late Soviet Union for his views on Afghanistan, or whether it's other things that most people in the West probably are not familiar with, um, and how they relate to what's happening here. I talk, for example, about where political correctness comes from. Do you know? No. It comes from the Soviet Union. It was invented in the Soviet Union. It had nothing ever to do with any sort of politeness or respect for other people. Political correctness was a way of saying to people, comrade, this is factually correct, but it's politically incorrect. And what it meant was it was inconvenient to the party line. And many of the things that are now happening have an explanation. And I, I dig into some of that in the book as well. And, you know, one of my, the, I suppose my main argument is, and you'll like this because of your religious uh, beliefs, I suppose, is we have to learn gratitude again for what we have. And I think the only way to do that is to appreciate how unique it is, how unusual it is, how extraordinarily unlikely what we enjoy in the West is. A garden in a jungle. Quite. And we're letting the weeds take over the garden. We're in danger of letting the jungle encroach. Quite. And the only way to do that is the garden has to be protected, John. It has to be guarded. It has to be nurtured. It has to be watered and appreciated by the people who walk in that garden and enjoy the fruits of it. I don't want to add or subtract anything from that. That's fantastic. Really appreciate your time. And it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. And thank you for coming here to our studio. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.